This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is the novelist Claire Massoud, the best-selling author of The Emperor's Children and The Woman Upstairs. Masood was born in the States but grew up in Australia and Canada. She now lives with her husband, the New Yorker literary critic James Wood, and their two children in Massachusetts. Her new book is The Burning Girl, a novel about two childhood best friends, Julia and Cassie, whose relationship unravels over time. Claire Masood joins me now from New York City, where I believe she is on a book tour. Is that correct? Uh, Just beginning, yes. Okay, awesome. Well, uh, it's good to have you here. And I wanted to start by asking a question about your new book, which I described a little bit in the intro. You're writing about two young people in the modern era. And I'm wondering how you think adolescence now, maybe either through observing it with your own children or reading about it or whatever, is different than the adolescence you had and what it was like to write about an adolescence that was different than your own. Well, um, the bottom line, I'm a parent. (laughs) So, uh, so, and I, and our kids are 16 and 13. And then we, you know, we have nieces and nephews also. So I, I feel that for the past, oh, easily five or even eight years, we, we've, uh, in our lives, you know, in my life, I've been living through, uh, adolescence all over again from a different, perspective, which is, you know, that of, that of an observer rather than somebody, uh, living through it. And, and, and so I, it's been a sort of palimpsest experience, uh, of the resurrection in my own, you know, in my mind of all the experiences that I remember from my youth and, uh, you know, that, that overlaid by the experiences of this younger generation that I've been, uh, that I've been witness to. And so what are, what are the differences in that younger generation that you see? Well, I think, you know, obviously the, the most basic difference is this is social media and, and the ways in which young people communicate uh, now, by, by which I don't just mean, you know, Snapchat versus phone calls, but I mean, I do mean that, but I mean, the, 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 what then, what the sort of knock on effect of that is, uh, you know, how it's different to, uh, to have a conversation with somebody that when I was young, you know, you, there were long twirly phone cords that enabled you to pull the phone into your bedroom and shut the door and you lay on your bed and talk to your friend for sort of two hours while your parents outside yelled, get off the phone, get off the phone. Um, and, and now, uh, you know, there, there are times when say doing homework or something, uh, my kids will be FaceTiming with their friends and, and, and then I will actually hear sort of that laughter coming from the clothes behind the closed door. And it makes me so happy because so much of their communication is instantaneous and barely verbal. You know, it's an image or, 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 or 30 seconds of video, um, but it isn't sustained conversational exchange, you know. Do your kids do your kids read fiction? Um, they do. They do. Our our daughter uh, who's sixteen is 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 
an has always been an avid reader. Our son, I think he, he reads more probably nonfiction than fiction, but, but uh, he reads fiction too. Mm-hmm. There's a quote in the book, which is a uh, quote. Sometimes I felt that growing up and being a girl was about learning to be afraid. What do you think when you hear that? And as a parent of a 16 year old daughter, um, I, I, I think, I mean, I think it both as a, as a, as a, as a woman and as a, parent as someone who was a girl and, and is a parent. I think it is, uh, it is something that I remember from my own youth and that I, um, and that I, and that I sort of have recognized with, uh, you know, my, my kids generation too, that, that, that when you, you're, when you're prepubescent, you don't think about your body, you, you, you don't, your body I mean, it's whether you can climb the fence fast enough or whether you can run the, you know, run the field fast enough, but, but, but you, your body is yours to do what you want with. And, and then certainly if you're female, as you, as you reach puberty and grow into adulthood, your body becomes a more complicated issue. And I mean, you can think of it just say in terms of, um, when you see a, uh, uh, religious Muslim family with various daughters and the nine-year-old girl gets to wear whatever she wants. And the 14-year-old girl doesn't anymore get to wear whatever she wants. And I'd be like, that's actually a very clear manifestation of this transition. But, it, but, 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 you know, across cultures and certainly in this culture, a version of that is going on all the time. Do you think since you started writing novels, there's been that, that critics and readers are, more willing to take stories about women or girls and their interior lives seriously than they were even 20 years ago? You know, that's a really interesting question because I I certainly think that in this time in the past um, five or maybe 10 years, it does seem as though there's, there's been a real uh, burgeoning of wonderful stories and fiction novels, you know, novellas, all different sort of forms of, of, of stories by and about women. Um, but I'm also aware, uh, I've been sort of thinking about it laterally that, that as a, as a teenager, I read a lot of books that my, that my mom gave me to read that were books she loved. And, and throughout the 20th century, you know, there, 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 there was an entire canon it's now the women's studies canon of, of, of amazing novels and stories by women about women, um, that, that a sort of smaller, that were taken very seriously. You know, they're, they're, they're amazing women, modernist writers, not just Virginia Woolf, a whole bunch of them, um, taken, always taken seriously, but just not widely read. So, so perhaps the, perhaps the formulation that I, I, I'd say is that, that, that there's, there's greater, um, there's a greater readership or, or, or more, more public attention, um, for, for those, uh, stories by women and about women, um, in the past, in the past 20 years, maybe. Yeah. I wondered with the response to Ferrante, if it would have been quite the same 15 years early, 20 right. years earlier. Right. Um, I mean, it's an impossible question to answer, but, um, it did seem like that was maybe not a turning point, but notable. Right. Well, the degree to which, um, the avidity with which sort of readers fell upon 
have fallen are still falling right um, upon these books um, upon you know Ferranti's novels I think is 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 really um, exhilarating and and sort of fascinating and um, it's it, it's hard you know it's hard to know I mean there are so many there are so many components like without Knausgaard would Ferrante have had the same, you know, was there... God, you know, I hope so. She would have still been the same without Knausgaard. But, I hope um, so. But, but, if you, but if you just think about this, the, 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 just because of the, I think of it because of the epic nature of the project, right? That, that somehow we, we as American readers might not have been attuned to the, to the epic project in quite the same way had, had we not just had one, um, you know, tra- being translated uh, almost simultaneously with Ferrante, but a little bit before, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I was going to ask you what you thought the secret success of of Ferrante was, aside from quality, which, you know, lots of things are good. But she's, she's a fantastic storyteller. I mean, I think she's a, she's her, the, the, it's, it's sort of, it's compulsive. You know, once you start, there's this big, it's Dickensian, there's this big canvas with all these different characters and you get to know them and then you get to know them over time. And, um, and, and, and I think she's very good with plot. You know, she, there's no, there are no, um, there are no sort of languorous, uh, <laughs> uh, meditative drifting 40 page, you know, sections where you, you're, you're sort of struggling to go on or falling asleep over it. There's none of that. She's, I think she's, 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 so there's that element. And then I think the way she's, she's managed to, um, combine the sort of intimate storytelling of, 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 of these very specific personal lives with the broader, social and political, uh, issues of, of late 20th century Europe, you know, and specifically Italy, um, not just feminism, but, you know, feminism, communism, uh, uh, the, the differences in social class, the, you know, the, 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 there's just, there are so many, um, bigger, bigger themes that are woven into the, the narratives that, that make it, that, you know, make, make this, this heart of it, the, the friendship between the two women, um, all the more resonant and satisfying, I think. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I wanted to ask you, um, I actually can't take credit for this question. A friend of mine suggested it. But um, in a previous novel of yours, The Woman Upstairs, you have two protagonists. And one makes these incredibly precise dollhouse dioramas. And the other wants to make these gigantic and sprawling pieces of art that people can actually inhabit. Uh, and I was, as an author, how do you think about these two varieties of art? And do you see your work as one or the other? Um, you know, I, I, I think that... So, I, I guess I feel that each of us in our in 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 our creative work, but also maybe in our lives too. But but whatever creative work we're doing, we have a rhythm, we have a breath, we have something that is natural to us. So there are people for whom you know that the, the tiny diorama is the natural space and the natural order. There are people for whom the haiku 
right? Is really, that's their natural breath. That's what they, um, they, they are master or mistress of that. And then there are other people who are at the other end of the spectrum, you know, the vast installation, the vast long lived installation, the, um, you know, the, the 2000 page, many volumed novel. Um, I, I'm very definitely not a haiku person. <laughs> um, I, you know, I'm sort of, a, I, I, I yeah, I feel like um, I, I I I just go on a bit. I guess you know I, f- I feel as though I'm I'm digressive and and many things you you know uh, when I'm writing something or thinking something many things uh, sort of link together and come to you know sort of the I can't finish sentence. Well, no, I maybe maybe ask this way just to go back to that that contrast in in the woman upstairs which is that how how important is it to your art do you feel to have other people read it um how much of the satisfaction you get is from from writing it and how much is it other people reading it or experiencing it well i you know <laughs> that that seems a different question actually to me but i but i'm very happy to answer it and and of course you you know i feel as a writer you're you're writing to communicate i'm 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 uh well, I'm much. Let's put it this way: I'm much more of a a a a, a, a Dubliners. If if I had to choose between Dubliners and Finnegans Wake, no choice, right? I'm not. I'm not at the Finnegans Wake end of of the spectrum. Um, but but well, how but, would you define that for for people who haven't? What, what, how would you define those two sides of the spectrum? Um, well, you can think of Joyce as, as, uh, this is, this is the work of James Joyce and, and you can sort of follow a trajectory in his work from, from, uh, from his early stories, which are, are very, um, very precise and rich and, and beautiful, but also very lucid and accessible to his, um, very last work, which is the magnum opus Finnegan's Wake in which he's, he's sort of almost inventing a new, uh, a new language, but, uh, I mean, it's all English, but the, the way in which the sentences flow and the, 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 the way the words are put together make actually make it sometimes pretty difficult for a reader to make sense of it. Um, and, 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 you know, Ulysses is, is in the middle, his, his most famous book is in the middle and is, formally challenging and innovative and exciting, but, but is also something that it's possible with some effort to make sense of, um, you know, to, to actually feel that as a reader, you are understanding what, what he was intending for you to understand. Whereas in Finnegan's Wake, it's just that much more open. You're like, well, I don't know what I'm understanding and what I'm understanding. Maybe it's not what he intended, but maybe he doesn't mind if I understand something different. Um, so I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I do, I, I do believe in, in, in language as a mode of communication rather than as, as something, um, as, as a, as simply hermetic art form. You, uh, you've, you write a lot of criticism too. Um, I don't know if you're writing more now than you used to, uh, but you're definitely, you, you write a lot of criticism on a wide variety of topics. And I, I'm wondering as, as you've been doing that more and more, uh, if you have been doing it more and more, has that changed you as a novelist at all? Um, you know, I, I've always done it. In fact, um, I, I, it's something that just from the, from the beginning, from the, from very early on for practical reasons, um, how to pay the rent reasons, uh, that I've, that I've always done. Um, I'm sure it has, it has, um, the fact that I write fiction, I'm sure has changed me as a, as, as, as a critic and vice versa. And I think 
you know, I, 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 I do think that when I write criticism, I'm, I'm always trying at least to understand what the, you know, back to this question of communication and intention, I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand not what I wish the book would be, but what the author is trying to do. Um, and, and I think, uh, as a, as a, as a, as a fiction writer, um, you know, I'm sure that, that sense of things is, is somewhere in there when I'm writing fiction, I'm hoping that, that even if I, as it were, even if I fail to fail to achieve what I, what I'm trying to, that, that somebody could figure out what I was trying to do. (laughs) You're married to James Wood, who is many people consider the best literary critic of the last number of years. And I actually interviewed him a couple years ago and I asked him, I said to him, you know, do you, what, what's it like to be married to a novelist? Cause you are critiquing novels all the time. You know, do you give her advice, et cetera, et cetera. And this, this is the answer. I'm going to read you what, what he said to me. He said, quote, that is a very specific question, but there's an easy answer, which is that when my wife gets me to read stuff, it's precisely as a critic that she wants me to read it. Or paradoxically, she wants me to read it as a critic and a husband. She wants a soft landing, as it were, but my utility is as a critic. Like most writers, she will come to me with her anxieties. Of course, a part of her wants to be reassured, but the other part really wants a cold eye, and I want the same from her. So I thought that was a very interesting answer. I thought it was a little bit of having it both ways. So I'm curious uh, what it is like to be married to a literary critic and what, uh, what sort of advice you do or don't seek out about your work from him. You know, it, it, it as you as you might <clears throat> imagine, I've been asked this question um, over time a, cer- a certain number of times, and I tend I tend to sort of answer in a way, you know, as he did, but by saying, you know, I want him both to be my loving husband and and an honest critic. It's for him to sort of square that circle. <laughs> um, so so uh, you know, I always think it's it's sort of harder. F- for, for him to be in the situation than for me. But, but it is also true. What he says, you know, or said to you is also true is that I don't, um, I, you know, we don't, it's not as though we, we sort of sit on opposite opposite sides of a single table and, and pass our work back and forth, um, all along the way. He's, he's the first, he's my first reader. So when something is finished, he's the first person to read it, but I don't, um, I'm not in a way I'm not asking him what should I do I'm asking him how to, does what do you do you think it works do, do you see the difference I'm not I'm not saying like do you think there should be another character here or do you think it should be in third person or I I'm not I I'm not um I'm I'm literally saying you know does that work is it boring does it go on too long isn't is it not fully realized yet you know and I don't and, and I'm not giving him that I'm not asking him that question until I've done all I can, if that makes sense. Sure. I mean, I guess speaking as someone who, speaking as a writer myself, although not someone who's able to write fiction, I, I think that sometimes one of the things that we do is we we ask someone for honest advice and then maybe they give us honest advice and we realize, oh, you know what? I didn't really want honest advice. I wanted a pat on the back or encouragement in some way. Right. And I can only imagine with with something more artistic than the type of writing I do, that that's even more the case. And so I just, it just seems like that could be a complicated, very difficult thing because this is such important work to you. Right. I I think, you know, um, he and I, we've known each other a long time and, and, um, and I think I know myself much better than I did at 20. And 
I sort of know when I need a pat on the back and, and I think he knows when I need a pat on the back and, 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 and possibly vice versa. You know, he, he, um, in addition to being a critic, he also writes fiction and, um, he, he has a novel coming out next year and, um, and it's a very beautiful, wonderful novel. And, and, and I don't think, um, you can be honest if you didn't like it. This is the place for honesty. (laughs) <laughs> but I really, I really love it. I think it's really beautiful. And I, um, and, and I think, um, when, when he asked me to, by the time he was ready to ask me to read it, he, you know, to give it to me to read, he, he wasn't wanting me to say, he wasn't wanting me to say that unless I meant that. Do you know what I mean? He, he, right. he really, he did not, he did not give it to me to read until he was at a point where he was ready to hear whatever I had to say. And, and I think that's a, compl- you know, that's a, that there's, it's such a complicated thing, but it, but, but with time, as you know, people, you, you, you know, you even come to know when they're, when they are lacking in self-knowledge. And I think, so for example, I think he knows that about me. If I don't, if I say, no, I really want you to be super critical and, and I don't really want that. I think he, you know, he may at that point know me better than I know myself. That's interesting. Is that a role that you are he would like your kids to take on? I would, no, I would not, my poor children, no. I, I feel like if they never want to read anything, I, I mean, I would want, not want them to feel any obligation or responsibility, no. Well, but buy the book on Amazon maybe, but not not actually uh, read <laughs> Buy 20 copies on Amazon, but that's... Exactly. Yeah. Um, you, uh, you just mentioned how you've changed a lot since you were 20, and uh, as I think most people have uh, after they turn 20 for the next couple decades, but... I, I was wondering what what books do you still? It's a two part question. What books do you still go back to from that age that you loved, and in what ways have your reading taste changed over the ensuing or uh, interim years? Um, there are. I feel there are so many books that I that I go back to or, or or long to go back to, and even if I have a very different experience of them. Um, you know, I, 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 I loved Mrs. Dalloway, uh, when I was, when I was 20, oh, the beautiful writing, you know, that, that lovely interiority, whatever. But, but, but actually when I read it now, I, 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 it's her, her understanding of, of the human experience and midlife and the passage of time and, and, and the ways in which your young self is still with you. And yet you have changed, you know, it's, it's, it's reading a different book, even as, as you're rereading the same book. And then there are books that I loved when I was young that I, that I love still, but, but that, that seem less mobile in themselves, if you will, that, that, that it's still the same book. I mean, I, I wrote my undergraduate thesis on Jane Bull's Two Serious Ladies. Um, it was her only novel. When I read it, I fell in love with it and, and was very passionate about it. And I, I still love it. Um, but it's not, but it's a very idiosyncratic and particular, uh, novel. And, and when I read it, I feel like I'm reading, I'm reading still the same book that I was reading then. Last question, then I'll let you go. Uh, when I moved to New York City and uh, moved to DC and spent a lot of time in New York City around 2005, 2006, 2007, in those years, uh, you know, I think a lot of my friends were reading Emperor's Children and myself too. And it was sort of seen as uh, one of the defining books about New York City in a very particular time. Uh, you're back in New York City now. How do you How do you feel looking back on that book and the ways in which the city's changed over the past decade? You know, um, it's, that's a really interesting question because I, I think, 
um, there's a there's a strange thing that that has happened in um, I suppose my life. This is not the answer that you might have hoped for, but that that I that I almost feel like I I'm I, you know. I think there's for a long time when, as I, as I was sort of moving through life, I felt I was, I had a better, you know, my, my grip on the world was getting better and better, you know, like I understood people better. I knew more things. I, I, I had a, I had a grasp of, of what was really going on. And I feel that in the past, uh, 10 years, actually, for a lot of reasons, uh, you know, just, um, to do with the world in part and to do with me, I'm kind of losing the thread. <laughs> so, so when you say, you know, how has New York changed? And I think, do I really know what New York is like now? I feel there's a lot of New York that, that is mysterious to me that I wouldn't have considered mysterious 10 years ago. And, and maybe actually isn't very different. I don't know. I mean, I can, I can sort of cite things that I think are different, but, but in, in terms of the sort of zeitgeist, I feel, I feel that I'm, I'm, I'm actually, um, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit out of it. Do you, but do you feel that that's, I mean, you mentioned that it's been a weird time, but do you think that that's more to do with you as a person or the way the world is changing? I mean, obviously you've, you have I think, older I think, kids now, et cetera. I think both of those things are true. So, I, th- I mean, I think there's, there's, there's the fact that there's, there, there's so much more, uh, and more constant information exchange, right? It's just relentless, which means, I mean, if you think of just anything like the, the very exhausting news cycles that we are, there's not even cycle isn't even appropriate news, news fragmentary moments, like a week seems like a year in this, in this current, uh, in our current, uh, situation. And, and so I feel there's so much constant information that, 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 you know, we, we can't see the forest for the trees because the trees are just overwhelming. So there's that, I feel that's a societal problem, you know, that we have. Um, and, and yeah, then zeitgeist, like, zeitgeist is a word seems I like, I used to feel like I knew exactly what that meant and you could identify something with a particular era. And now it seems just muddier the whole concept because things are moving so quickly. Cause things go so fast. And then, and then I feel like the past 10 you know, on the other side, on the sort of personal side, you know, um, I, 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 I was 40 when the Emperor's Children came out. I'm 50 now. And, and in between, you know, my, my, my parents, uh, illnesses and deaths, my, uh, my children growing up very consuming, very emotionally powerful, very, uh, very life changing experiences. So I, I feel like I'm in a very different, um, I, I probably couldn't, list all the way. I probably don't know all the ways in which I'm a different person now. Uh, Claire Masood, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciated you coming on the podcast. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much and take care. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling with help today from Daniel Schrader. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. If you have an idea for a guest or just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. We've been getting a lot of great suggestions, and I would say the number of weird suggestions is down to about 10%. So let's get it lower, maybe to 5%. That would really make me feel good. If you're in the Bay Area, I've got a live show coming up at Books, Inc. in San Francisco on September 26th. I'll be interviewing author Franklin Foer about his new book, World Without Mind. To make sure you get a seat, head to booksinc.net. That's booksinc.net. 